0: Very beautiful, Autumn. Thank you very much. If you would, please return to Mark chapter 9. You know, we've already read the detailed account uh, concerning the demon-possessed boy in chapter 9 of Mark during the scripture reading, so I'm going to ask that you merely return there uh, as we continue our study through Luke. But you will also want to make yourselves aware that this same incident, uh, this same event is also recorded in Luke chapter 9 and Matthew 17, but provided there with somewhat somewhat less detail. As we know from last week, in our study, Jesus had taken only three of the apostles with him up on the mountain during his transfiguration. And when they came down from the mountain, Luke advises us that was on the very next day. Uh, It appears that the other nine apostles had been pretty busy while they were gone. In fact, Mark 9 verse 14 tells us there had gathered a very large crowd, some of whom were religious scribes who had entered into a dispute with the disciples who had remained behind at the bottom of the mountain. But when Jesus appears along with the other three, which were Peter, James, and John, the crowd now becomes very anxious to see him. Jesus asks his disciples in verse 16, in a sense, why is this crowd so agitated? He says, what is it you are discussing with them? And it appears even before the disciples had an opportunity to respond, uh, the center of the argument, or the focus on the argument, was blurted out from the crowd. Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. So it seems as though this request came to the disciples in the form of a command. I told your disciples to cast it out. One resource that I was reading suggested that it may even have been possible in the absence of Jesus that uh, the scribes had come to challenge the disciples who had remained alone and behind. Uh, The the scribes might have even recruited uh, this man along with his demon-possessed child uh, to use against the disciples who were now alone. And, And if you remember... The twelve, right at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, the twelve had already been delegated from Jesus the power uh, over demons and diseases and, and all types of miracles. And previously, they've been very successful. Very successful, but not here. Not today. Not on this occasion. And, and I, I kind of tried to imagine to myself the type of antics that might have been occurring during this dispute, during their repeated failures to exercise just, just one stubborn demon. What did that look like? You know, it's, why can't you do it, Thomas? Could you pick it up a little bit? Or, or Nathaniel says, get out of the way. Let me jump in there. Let me have my shot. Or another might ask, hey, Simon, you're the zealot. Why don't you go after him and give him a try? And attempt after attempt, folks, at least nine tries, if all the disciples took their chance, taking their best stab at this demon, repeatedly they fail. They all fail. And, and certainly that failure would provide fodder to the religious scribes who accordingly began to confront those same disciples in an argument. This is a setting now when Jesus comes down from the mountain after his transfiguration, revealing his glory to Peter, James, and John. There's a large crowd quarreling now at the bottom of the mountain. At the center of it all is a father standing over his demon-possessed son. Uh, That's just our day in the ministry, folks. Quarreling. Talk about demons. Things that are outside of our control. The father seems genuine enough. He has a yearning to help his son. It's it's his only son, we're told. He begs Jesus to have mercy as he had previously even begged the disciples. And in verse 19, we are told that Jesus answered them. And he said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Jesus' experience with this crowd is typical of the norm. Unbelief. It's one of the reasons he marveled so much back in Luke chapter 7 when we looked at the centurion. Jesus marveled at his belief. And he says, I haven't seen belief like this anywhere in Israel. Here he finds unbelief. The centurion was the exception Here it seems the entire crowd is unbelieving. In fact, in the account found in Luke, Jesus expresses great disgust. He refers to them as both an unbelieving and a perverted generation. That term perverted in the Greek language, it means depraved. It means crooked. It means deviant. The deviant, crooked, perverted, unbelieving generation. Well, who's that stern rebuke pointed at? Who's he speaking to? Who's the unbelieving generation? Grammatically, uh, the antecedent of unbelieving? It's not specific. It doesn't tell us exactly uh, who Jesus is pointing to. It's unclear. It can refer to the crowds. It can include the disciples. It certainly describes the scribes. Jesus seems to suggest and an unbelief, a deficiency in faith, appropriately, appropriately describes everybody, the entire generation, including his own disciples. Jesus would later assign the same word unbelieving, to doubting Thomas. This is even after the resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 25, when Thomas claimed. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. When Jesus then appeared to Thomas, he told him, be not unbelieving, but believing. The rebuke by Jesus for having a deficiency of faith seems to apply appropriately To everybody in this crowd. Did they all have the identical level of deficiency? Surely no. Were they all equally depraved and crooked? Likely not. But none of them believed as they should. In fact, Jesus' charge would likely be appropriate to describe everybody here today as well. Each one of us, including myself. We don't believe as we should. So although that assertion that I make isn't to indicate there's a lack of redemption in every person here, it doesn't suggest there remains a measure of unbelief uh, where we aren't saved, but it does suggest there's a measure of unbelief in our trust in God. If we fully believed as Christ believed, we would not act or live as we do. If Christians believed as we should, we would not continue to sin as we do. We would not devote our lives to fruitless pleasures as we do. We wouldn't hoard our possessions like we do. We surely wouldn't argue amongst ourselves as we do. Instead, if we believed as we should, we would be a lot more like Jesus. Oh Lord, we need Him to help our unbelief. By the way, Arguing amongst themselves. Describes the apostles in the very next scene after this. We'll see that in Luke 9 verse 46. After the failed fiasco here. And while journeying from this location to go back to Capernaum. The disciples begin to contend with one another. Which of them is the greatest? Just amazing. Think about it. I remember back in school when you go to a basketball tournament and everybody be playing their part and passing the ball back and forth and you'd be getting whooped and then you imagine one guy comes in at the last second and throws a half court three-pointer and sinks it that's basically what jesus does here he comes in and saves the day and then imagine on the bus ride home all the rest of the players on the team suggesting to themselves who's the greatest which of us is the greatest right when they had all failed and Christ came to the rescue, arguing amongst themselves. Why do they argue? Because they're unbelieving and perverted. A perpetual degree of unbelief constantly invades all of our earthly endeavors, turns our lives into misery. That's what unbelief does. I had a brief conversation with Gene Turner Uh, Last week, sitting here right behind Jerry. And uh, right before service, talking for a few moments about the apostles and at what point they came to saving faith. The answer seems uncertain. There were 12 different disciples, so there could have been 12 different points of salvation. Certainly by Pentecost, they all believed. But one answer is for certain. Even after the point each did trust in Christ... Whatever moment that was, they still failed to believe as they should. We do the same. In that sense, in a sense of deficiency of faith, a lack of sanctification, we can all be described as unbelieving. The term unbelieving surely describes the father of this boy. In verse 20, He brought him to Jesus, which provoked the demon, by the way, to strike out, throw the boy into convulsions. The father advises Jesus this has been happening since he was a child. And he informs Jesus in verse 22, "It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Well, that last statement by the father right there exposes the root of the whole problem. The root of the whole problem is in verse 22. He asks Jesus, if you can. If you can. If you enjoy writing in your Bibles, as some of you do, go ahead and mark a big red flag right there by that verse in 22. Circle if, and then write unbelieving. Even Jesus himself responds <laughs> in a sense of amazement. If you can all things are possible to him who believes. Sir, do you, you actually think that God is limited in some way? There surely has been a breakdown in the understanding of this Father. Friends, think to yourself for a moment. What is it exactly that God can't do? I mean, other than things that are self-imposed or self-limited because of his character, uh, he can't lie. His nature doesn't allow him to sin. He can't cheat on cards, obviously. But what exactly is it that God can't do? All things are possible with God. Also make a careful note that Jesus isn't offering here a, a, a check in blank, a blank check, uh, suggesting God will do whatever he desires, the man desires, if he simply asks with enough faith. That interpretation is, is entirely dismissive of the balance of the Bible. It's really ignorant of the balance of Scripture. That, that would be putting yourself in the place of God. Making Him your servant rather than us being His servant. God spoke the universe into existence. He formed Adam from the dust and He breathed a Spirit into him. God's omnipotent, that's a word we use meaning all-powerful, what could be more futile than to pray for something that you don't think God could do? How futile would that be? Can you imagine praying while at the same time in the back of your mind not believing that God could do it? What would be the point of that? I think that Matthew is very helpful here In his record, as the disciples are seen later, asking why they couldn't drive out this demon. Jesus informs them in Matthew 17, verse 20, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Similar to our day, in ancient Jewish literature, moving a mountain was a very common metaphor. Very common, uh, used for accomplishing something that was seemingly impossible beforehand. Jesus wasn't suggesting to the disciples or, or to you or I that we would be able, at, at a whim, if we have enough faith, just cast mountains into the sea. I mean, look at, look at the topography of the earth over the last couple thousand years. Hasn't changed a whole lot, right? Not a whole lot of mountains missing. Maybe a little bit of soil erosion. A little dust blowing around. But the planet hasn't changed a whole lot in the last 2,000 years. What Jesus is suggesting to his disciples and to us is that by praying to God in faith, we will accomplish things that were seemingly impossible. Because all things are possible With God, I have a list that I have set aside in a secret place of impossible things that God has done in my life. Many of them are since just coming here to Port St. Lucie, and you would think beforehand there is no way this could happen. There is no way I could force this to happen. Nothing in my power could I could I make this occur, and yet God does impossible things. And you look back and you think to yourself, there's no way I could be in the situation I'm in and have been blessed in the way that I have unless God has been in there doing the work. All things are possible with God. He moves mountains. But the results of our prayers are always qualified by the will of God. In 1 John 5.14, the Apostle John reminds us, this is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to His will, according to God's will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. He hears us, we have the requests because we ask for the things that are according to His will. We ask in harmony to His will. That's what that verse says. We never demand God respond according to our will. We dare not even boast that today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and make a profit. Because James says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You have no idea. You're a vapor. You and I are not in control of such things. Instead, James says, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. Look at those things in James Chapter 4, those exhortations. Uh, more often, as James says, we ask and we do not receive. Why? Because we ask to spend it on ourselves. We ask, he, sa- uh, he, he tells us, with wrong motives. Our motives aren't the same motives as God's. That's the problem when prayers go unanswered. So the lesson is that our prayers should never culminate With a question mark, folks. Lord, if you can. Instead, our prayers should always conclude with this attitude. Oh Lord, if it be your will, we know you can. We know you can. That follows the model Jesus provided as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. Remember what he prayed? He said, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. Looking for God's will. The father, he didn't initially believe. He he asked, if you can. But in verse 24, his attitude suddenly changes. After Jesus reminds him, all things are possible to him who believes. We then read, immediately the boy's father cried out, and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, the demon came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. And he got up. I don't think we need to delve much deeper into this exorcism. We've sufficiently observed in previous chapters Jesus' power over the demonic realm, over the spiritual realm on previous occasions. Uh, Jesus has also to us repeatedly displayed uh, his power over the realms of life and and of death as well. We've seen this repeated theme in Luke. So so there's no need to to just tirelessly debate whether or not uh, this child was dead or whether he was just sleeping or any of those things that the text really doesn't tell us. Maybe he merely looked dead. We don't know. What we do know is Jesus banished the demon and and that he raised up the boy. And there will always be, folks, more. There will remain plenty that we could continue to harvest from this passage. But the point that distinguishes this miracle from those we've seen is the plea of this Father. Who at first clearly did not believe. Then he confessed that he did believe. And then he cried out to Jesus, but help my unbelief. Can we finally recognize as Christians, we suffer a condition of unbelief. I'm so, certainly not suggesting a, a spirit of unregeneration, a state of unregeneration. The hearts of all true Christians are permanently regenerated and, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's in earnest, guaranteeing our inheritance as children of God, uh, our eternal inheritance. Yet, yet I'm going to be honest with myself. I will right here, and I'll be honest with you, um, acknowledging I still do not believe as I should. I don't believe as I should. I think this is the confession of the heart of this boy's father. Lord, help my unbelief. Pentecost, who I quoted last week, he's just been marvelous in this section of Scripture. Writes concerning this man's salvation. Jesus drew a principle, he says, that everything is possible to the one with faith. He affirmed that he could give mercy in response to the father's faith. At this point, the father publicly confessed his faith in the person of Christ, saying, I do believe. He realized the doubts that had been plaguing him and the conflicts that had been raging because of the controversy that was carried on between Christ and the Pharisees. However, he confessed his faith and pleaded that help might be given to overcome his doubts or his unbelief. In response to faith, Christ commanded the evil spirit not only to come out of the boy, but to never enter him again. Help my unbelief. Calvin, who's never short on words, writes this about this man's sanctification. Not salvation, now we're talking sanctification. He declares, Calvin says, that he believes, and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there's none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers. But God forgives us and exercises such forbearance towards us as to reckon us believers on account of a small portion of faith. Did you happen to spot or recognize what it was that brought this father to trust in Jesus? It was solely Christ's words to him. All all the man needed to do was believe that what Christ had spoken. That all things are possible with God. Do you believe that, folks? Do you believe that all things are possible with God? Because a lot of Christians today maybe quote-unquote Christians, don't believe that. Pastor Weiler shared an article with me just this past week from a very prominent pastor up in Atlanta. Huge congregation. Very articulate man. Huge following. Massive church. Went to the same seminary I did. And he's now telling his congregation and people in the audio that they don't over audio, that they don't have to believe that Christ was born of the Virgin. All things are possible with God. What I'd like to ask him is, if you don't have to believe the one thing in the Bible, what else can you unbelieve? What about the resurrection? Do you also unbelieve that? No, nothing is impossible with God. This man's faith was too little. But thankfully he came to recognize that fact. And in the end he was willing to admit and cry out to Jesus to help him in his unbelief. Unbelief was a similar condition suffered by Christ's disciples. Why couldn't they cast out the demon? Christ told them it's because of the littleness of your faith. Was there a difference between this demon and others they had previously cast out? I don't know. Maybe it appeared more repulsive. Perhaps it acted more violently. Maybe it was because Jesus with Peter, James, and John had spent the night up on the mountain. The other nine doubted they could handle this demon alone. The fact is they couldn't. could never handle a demon alone. People don't wield authority and power over demons themselves. God has power over demons. God delegated that power to them as Jesus dispatched them to drive out demons earlier in chapter 9. He gave them the power over demons. They didn't think that was enough? Because of the littleness of their faith, they couldn't drive it out. How little was their faith? Exactly how little was their faith? Have you asked that question yet? This is the most shocking part of this whole passage right here. The passage tells us exactly how tiny their faith was in God in verse 29. Tragically, Jesus had to tell them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. They repeatedly went face to face with a demon, and they hadn't even prayed. That's pretty hard for us to imagine, right? But think about how many times you've faced down the demons in your own life and you never even stopped to pray. Why do we behave that way? It's because of the littleness of our faith, folks. Oh, dear Lord, help our unbelief. Was this demon a different kind as the passage suggests? Probably. Jesus seems to indicate this demon might have displayed different qualities than other demons that they had previously faced, but it wasn't a demon that God had never faced. God cast all the fallen angels out of heaven, including Lucifer. God had faced him down before. God have any problem with this demon? No. But the passage isn't teaching Christians to discern or to categorize demons. As you'll find so many people suggesting we need to determine what type of demon or what kind of demon or what category of demon that we're dealing with. That's not what this is teaching at all. That's just a waste of time. Instead, Jesus is teaching us to pray because all things are possible with God. Our failure to pray shows the littleness of our faith in God. It proves we don't adequately trust in God such lack of faith is it's epitomized through our behaviors, folks. Behaviors such as a person asking to put something on our prayer list, yet fails himself or herself to even show up for prayer, even when they have the complete ability to do so, fully capable of doing so. Do we believe that, that placing a name on a prayer list is what saves or heals people? Merely a name being on a list? No. Search, search for scriptures for that prayer list. No. Pray, folks. Don't just look at a list or seek to be put on a list. Pray. Is, is it any wonder that so many of our prayers go unanswered? As we just leave them sitting on a list. We don't pray. Lord, help our unbelief. Jesus' command for us to pray is not just writing a name on a list though. So that perhaps somebody else, somewhere else, can pray for it at some point. Maybe somebody else will pray, we say. And our obedience to prayer, when we obey God, is acknowledging that all things are possible with Him. Regardless of the hopelessness of our situation, or even the, the kind of demon that we might be facing. Again, Pentecost writes, this lesson was designed to teach the men that their ministry in future days must be carried on in dependence on God and faith in Him. It would be their faith, not their position, which would make it possible for them to fulfill the ministry entrusted to them. Unquote. That's the lesson. All things are possible by God. We pray to Him. Folks, do you know why this church isn't larger? It's the littleness of our faith. It's possible we don't believe in our hearts that God can do much greater things with what He's already given us. Maybe we don't believe that. Maybe, just perhaps, maybe we're trusting in our own abilities rather than God's. Maybe in our hearts we actually believe that God is drawing people to repentance through the niceness of a facility or the elaborateness of the worship. Perhaps we've determined, as many have, that God redeems sinners through the eloquence of preaching, through the politeness and eloquence of preaching. Why aren't we more liberal in offering our time? our spiritual gifts, our treasure. Why isn't the building paid off yet? Maybe we doubt that God is actually doing anything. Maybe, just maybe, Christ isn't building His church. Or at least not here. Or perhaps I've determined it's, it's safer to sit back. Sit back and merely enjoy the scenery for a while and perhaps eventually I'll I'll witness some visible sign, maybe a wonder that that God will show me he's truly expanding his kingdom through this work. Maybe I'll just wait, and maybe then I'll pour myself in. Maybe then I'll put my chips in and give myself wholeheartedly for God, if he'll just show me a sign. Why aren't we seeing more friends and neighbors one to faith in Christ? The answer there is really easy because we don't share with them the gospel. And we aren't sharing the gospel because we don't really believe that God is saving anybody in this city. Consider this sample of things, folks. Just a sample. A broad sample. But but think in your own life. What aren't you believing God can do? Perhaps you and I can now understand why Jesus expressed so much frustration with this unbelieving and perverted generation. I am so glad we look nothing like them. Is it any wonder why so few are getting saved when we honestly assess the littleness of our faith? Why is it just a trickle that we see coming to trust in Jesus? The day is now, folks, to acknowledge our sin and confess how tiny we esteem our holy and righteous God. How tiny we see Him in our eyes. It's time to forsake our attitude of unbelief by crying out in our hearts, the same humble words expressed through this Father. Oh Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Dear Father, we look at the pages of your Holy Word, see the people that you talk to and Interacted with and showed compassion on and those whom you loved, Lord. And we look so much like them. Father, as you walked to this earth uh, through the incarnation of Christ, through a virgin, that your son was born and lived amongst us and walked among men, Lord, you taught us so much. We confess that we don't measure up, that we're very little, that we're little in faith and, Lord, that we don't uh, trust in you the, the way we should. We don't really believe you can do as much as you've already said you can do. And, Lord, uh, we pray together that you will strengthen that faith. As this man cried out, help my unbelief, Lord, we cry out today, help our unbelief, Lord. I pray your blessing upon this congregation as, as we go out from here as witnesses, ambassadors of Christ, telling the truth that there's an answer to sin, there's an answer to our problems, and there's an answer to every demon in this world. And that answer is in Christ. Father, strengthen us to do that. Encourage us to be faithful, Lord, that we would give ourselves wholeheartedly to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.